Hello. Hi. Welcome to... Survival Guide. It's ep three. Episode three of the Survival Guide um, with Joel Spring and... And Lorna Munro. Talking to you on this fine Friday. Um, well, not really fine. It's, it's a bit grey and a bit disgusting, but actually. But it's Friday nonetheless. Friday nonetheless, yes. Um, this is Survival Guide. We're talking to you about um, colonisation, gentrification and the parallels between the two in the city that we live in. And what you've got to do to survive that. Um, I think maybe we should just have a quick recap. Yeah, definitely. We've, we've had episode one, um, Leave Your White Fragility at the Shore, a bit of an intro, a um, bit of a discussion about what the survival guide is and what we hope to bring to that um, guide. Yes. Um, and for our listeners and that out there as well. Um, and then ep two, we had... Um, Talking about black economics and neoliberalism, and the way that we are all complicit in the way that money um, infiltrates um, and completely divides communities, mm. um, the way that us and everyone involved in everyone is involved in gentrification and the ongoing displacement and um, colonization of this country. As we've shown, we spoke to some really great people um, about this stuff. Last week, we had a great opportunity to speak with Jennifer Finn and also with um, your mum. It was my mum. It was epic. Um, We probably did more interviews in that one one episode that we probably than we probably ever do jokes. Nah, I don't know. We'll see how we go. No, but it was deadly. It was epic. I know. Um, I just. Thought I'd game and like <laughs> make out that we don't, um, but there's no point to that. Anyway, um, so that was like aptly named Wallung. So it was like real important to just bring that back to. Yeah, can you explain for everybody what Wallung means? Wallung is a word that means money, or it means today um, money. How we use it today, um, the word, and what it originally means is not really associated with money and I guess part two was all about that Mm. and unpacking that was mentioning that a couple of times um, with the push to really try to um, revert back to our our ancient um, value systems that value land, resources, water, thinking um, connecting values, conversation, values, kinship, values, mm. all of these things that make us a social, socially cohesive. Mm. And um, connected, interconnected, not not trying to make money off each other, you know. That's um, it. Um, but if there is money, we should all be getting a, a bit of it, you know. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, Shared around, guys. Um, that's right. Yeah, so today we're talking, we're going to bring it back to base. I mean, we're going to talk about how... We got here. What mm. this show? Um, what kind of? What was the straw that broke the camel's back for both Lorna and I, and got us involved? I mean, Lorna's always been very involved in the community and through everything, through activism in her entire upbringing. Um, myself, after coming back to Sydney, coming back to a community that I grew up in, and seeing what was going to happen in Waterloo, mm. um, and 2015 really kind of got me angry and, and, and saw what made me think about what I could contribute being someone who's studying architect or has had studied architecture and was going on to pursue that as a career um, as well as being a you know a young indigenous man. Mm. So we're going to kind of go back in time a little bit 
and we're mm. going to take you all back to 2015 um, in December when everyone in Waterloo received a, a message. Like literally every, every letterbox. Um, so there was a letter dropped by the New South Wales government, um, by the state, the, the state minister for social housing um, issued a letter informing everyone of what was about to happen. So, mm. Lorna, can you take us back to that day? You were living in Waterloo at that time. Yeah, I was, um, I was living in uh, literally probably like a flat the size of this studio. And we're not in a big studio, guys. No, it's, um, it's you know, it's a fairly standard kind of thing. Um, I was probably like six months pregnant as well um, mm -hmm. with my first child. Um, uh, was already going through a lot of stress. Was already going through, uh, already kind of having all of these emotional kind of um, things happening due to uncertainty. Mm, and mm. that was because of my position at that yeah. time. Um, but also because of the things that we were hearing and the rumour mill were kind of, you know, going into overdrive. There was lots of stories. Everybody was kind of asking each other had they received this letter. Mm. So then it was like this kind of, I don't know, thing that people, it wasn't tangible. Mm. But like because the way that these things had been dropped into the letterboxes, it become, you know, kind of... I don't know, it's a really weird thing. But it basically meant that a lot of tenants were continuously asking each other, have you heard about this letter? Have you received this letter? Have you got this letter? What do you think this letter read, uh, means? Can you read this and tell me what you think it means? You know, there was a lot of deciphering mm. of that letter. And um, I think we're going to go through it with you guys yeah. now. I think it's important in terms of this narrative of where we started out and what's happening and what and we're going to reflect on the time that's passed between 2015 and now mm. and talk about Redfern Waterloo as it stands. But I think this really is where we're going to start and this kind of is where it all started. It's where it's going to open up the whole conversation. Mm. So Lorna's going to take it from here. So this is a letter that I received and it is dated on the 16th of December 2015. The letter starts out. Dear tenant, I am excited to write to you and let you know Transport for New South Wales has announced a new Sydney metro station at Waterloo, due to be completed in 2024. On my visits to Waterloo, I have spoken to a number of tenants who have told me they like living in the area, but are disappointed with the quality of the ageing housing on the Waterloo estate. The new metro station not only brings fantastic new rapid transport to Waterloo, it means we can develop, redevelop the estate with brand new and more social housing that meets people's needs. I want to assure you that tenants who live at Waterloo can remain in Waterloo after the redevelopment, while some tenants may need to relocate on an inter interim basis into other housing in the local area. Many will be able to move directly into the new social housing as the site is redeveloped. In addition to boosting social housing in Waterloo, there will be a big increase in private housing and also affordable housing with the new Waterloo metro station in easy walking distance. The redevelopment will not happen overnight. It will be staged over 15 to 20 years. The first relocations will not take place until mid-2017 and experienced FAC staff will assist people to settle comfortably in their new homes. 
During the planning process, we'll be talking to tenants and the broader community about the future of the neighbourhood to help develop more detailed precinct plans with new parks, homes and community facilities. The plans will then be will then be put on public exhibition and we will support tenants and the community to engage sorry to engage in this process the metro station and the area's renewal will transform the waterloo housing estate for the better building a dynamic new community with the great transport better homes better facilities and more jobs housing staff from the department of family and community services will be available to answer your questions at the neighborhood center and it's got the address um, where it was. And I think I'll leave that there. And then it's signed. Yours sincerely, Brad Hazard, MP Minister. Mm. I mean, this was, this mm. was sent to everybody. This, was, this mm. arrived in everybody's mailbox. Um, mm. This is the entire community of the Waterloo Housing Estate. At the time, was roughly around 3,000 people living in the estate, mm. I think. And... Everyone received this letter from um, Minister Brad Hazard, and I think, I think what's excite, I think, I think, I think what's especially interesting about this is when you kind of look at the language, the way that this is sort of mm-hmm. phrased, the mm-hmm. just the fact. I mean, dear tenant, I am excited to write to mm-hmm. you. The the goal, in a way, for someone who, you know, on my visits to Waterloo have seen, but you know. This man who's, who you know, lives somewhere else is making decisions about this sort of stuff, telling you that he's excited, he's excited to tell you that your house is going to be torn down, excited that you're going to be put in um, precarious housing for mm. who knows how long. Um, over the, you may be able to, do, to, to, be, to stay on, on the Waterloo site. You may have to move. This is not going to happen overnight. It's probably going to take 20 years. We're not going to say anything for certain, but... What we are going to tell you, and we, you can't say we haven't warned you, is that we're going to move you out of here. Mm. But we would love to tell you how excited we are. I know. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of insulting. It's that. insulting to deliver a, a message like this to someone, a, a fundamentally something that is so important to people who need housing, um, people who are in the public housing system mm. and, have, a, and need subsidised housing to be, um, to be kind of toyed with in this way, to be treated so flippantly or to be, to be told i mean it's it's that helplessness it's it's that feeling of not actually owning what you what you live in and owning mm. this owning your situation mm. that means that someone else gets to make these decisions for you and and that that can really lead to a lot of um really really uh, complicated feelings and i mean you firsthand must have been feeling these things oh you can like even reading this now retrospectively i'm you can hear that i'm not convinced <laughs> You know, um, uh, yeah, there was a lot of lot of confusion. Um, there was a lot of older tenants, a lot of tenants from non-English speaking backgrounds that would be asking uh, younger tenants to translate these things mm. and then um, reiterate what it was that it was saying. Um, you know, I it was just total mass confusion with mm. a smile um yep. you know really packaged and pushed with a smile and i just uh, these comments um that the tenants uh have said that they like living in the area but are disappointed with the quality of the aging housing in the waterloo estate and now i'm pretty sure that if you ask any of the tenants they won't be complaining about the aging housing in the estate they'll be complaining about maintenance 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 
they'll be complaining about very um signs of ungone treatment negligence. signs of negligence in terms of the housing estate which is you know very well documented um within the estate we there's a lot of there's there was a there was a huge class action case that almost went ahead against the minister um, and against um, Land and Housing Corporation on the fact that they had left the, the Waterloo estate under without any update or any maintenance repairs for nine years, I think, yeah. at one point, um, which is astounding mm. um, to use that negligence on their part as the government, as the housing mm. provider, as the um, reasoning and the leverage in which they could uh, allow for redevelopment. Mm. Um, and we see this all the time. I mean, this is the way that government mm-hmm. s- seems to work these days. Mm-hmm. Is they um, underplay their own they they underplay their own um, negligence or uh, their own uh, laziness around issues and topics affecting marginalised groups. Um, they let it get bad, and then they fix it, which was their responsibility in the first place, and then they pat themselves on the back. Yeah. <sighs> Fantastic new rapid transport to Waterloo. Again, more comments, more comments. I How far is the road from train station mm, from the Waterloo Estate? Up, up around the corner, I right did. in the middle of Green Square as well. Um, uh, you know, this... It's an insult. Mm. It was a huge insult. And a lot of the official information that has been released ever since mm. has really had a similar tone. But I guess, I mean, we can kind of cover it again. And it's like, you know, the redevelopment, the large-scale sell-off of public land was is kind of what they're alluding to. Um, mm-hmm. What we found out later, what we find out over this course of the period from 2015 into 2016 is mm-hmm. that there, the, the redevelopment was to tip the percentages of the current housing stock to increase it by 70% mm-hmm. in high density private mm-hmm. and keeping the existing social housing as, 3, 000, mm-hmm. as, the, as 30%. So that's that's... An influx of 7,000 people mm. in private housing um, with the first waves of relocations they, they said would, would happen in the middle of 2017. It is now 2018 and there has not been a single relocation. Um, the mm. redevelopment of Waterloo and the surrounding public housing estates of Redfern and Surrey Hills is significant because it's not just the way that it affects everyone who's living there currently, but as is the point of this show, we're trying to highlight the mm. connections between colonisation and gentrification. And the fact that it's this, this place is so significant and holds importance of this is important is, it, is the crucible of Indigenous self-determination in Sydney and the role in supporting the contemporary political consciousness of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. To the Indigenous community, the redevelopment of Waterloo and Redfern and Waterloo precinct represents much more than the loss of physical housing stock. Yeah. It promotes economic growth over stability, well-being of the community, and it puts a further barrier. It puts further barriers between the conti- between a continued presence for Indigenous people in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something, and I think that that was the that was the main reasoning that you and I kind of got so involved in this. And you know, that's actually how we met. Yeah. Was 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 working um, alongside some of the members of the housing estate, um, WAPAG, the Waterloo Public Housing Action Group, and a few other people. In, in trying to combat and, and navigate this large-scale, um, completely confusing mm. um, set of, 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 of plans and consultation meetings and, and, and this, conf- this completely uh, distracting and confusing um, whirlwind of bureaucracy that mm-hmm. was making it very difficult for anyone to understand what was going to happen to them. And mm. I think 
they play into that definitely oh they definitely use that use that as a tool very well and again this is why we're looking at this right now um you know in this letter it says um uh, boosting social housing in waterloo it says there will be a big increase you know and and we find out the numbers much later Mm. um and this this is again kind of how they how they get in there and how they use this confusion as actual tactic to kind of delay exposing the fact that they don't actually have a plan. Exactly. Um, they actually don't know what they're doing. They know that they can make a lot of money yeah. and that's what they plan to do. That's mm-hmm. their plan. That's it. That's probably the only plan. <laughs> they don't actually know how they're going to get there mm. and what they're going to do to get there. Um, you know, but... Yeah, it becomes very clear. Um, you know, a lot of campaigns in the last couple of years, actually everything, a lot of things coming from the government that have been tailored towards Aboriginal people has actually been using this tactic very well, mm. which is, you know, saying one thing and doing another. By all means, if you do have a plan and it's not so sinister, call us up, let us know. We're just talking about how it feels like here on the ground. We're going to try and unpack this narrative further for you today and talk about kind of what's going on in Waterloo, how we've seen this before and what sort of what sort of mm-hmm. tools and tactics we've learnt from and how mm-hmm. we can take this forward into this un- uncertain territory. Yeah. Like we said, they told us that they were going to be relocating people at, at mid 2017. It's now the beginning of 2018 and they're saying they're not going to do it until 2019. So we've got... Um, yeah, how a, long is this going to disrupt people's lives as exactly, well, you know? Um, exactly. Um, and I guess we're going to reiterate some of these conversations that has brought us us in the same space mm, exactly. um, you know that has spur, spurred these this guide and the little wave of of resistance that mm. is kind of present in the area which again you know um, is really taken taken from the ashes of the of the embassy um, that was set up down the block as well with my mum um, they're doing that on on um, sorry day, mm. you know. So there's not just there's waves. There's waves of these things to counteract colonization. The way that colonization came in waves, mm. and I really, you know, a lot of my work kind of sits really well in that in that kind of space because it's like, yeah, we we know what's happened because. We are little history geeks and we mm. know our history and we know how people have been dispossessed in Sydney and how it's such an important thing to retain space yes. specifically there. Maintaining that presence um, is key to there being any any stories left about yeah. the mob in Redfern, Waterloo. The point of this whole show is to kind of look into the past to find out what tools and tactics there are for us mm. to go on further and to deal with these issues um, around displacement and all the other effects that colonisation and gentrification have on our communities. Mm. So we're going to take this back now and I'm going to throw it to Lorna. We're going to talk about her experiences growing up in Redfern and, I mean... The government has always had its eyes on Waterloo. That's right. It's always been that way. Um, uh, and just talking um, the last couple of days, just making notes and trying to track this. I have to go back and look at um, around the time of the Olympics when there was like a huge, there was a very aggressive campaign to um, sweep the streets, literally, of black people 
there was a lot of people arrested as well and that then were then further moved out. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of there was a lot of um focus on Aboriginal people not being the desired residents of that area. Of course, you know, during the Olympics we've got all these international visitors. Aboriginal people have always been this country's dirty, dark little secret um, that they want to cover up all the time and not admit that their ancestors massacred people and were murderers and thieves and rapists and all of that. They didn't want to sell that. They didn't want to sell that when they were selling the city for the Olympics. Yeah, no one wants to admit that. Um, You know, not in this country anyway. But, you know, they, they celebrate bushrangers and all those kinds of people um, which apparently, just a little thing there, apparently they bush, a lot of the bushrangers got their information from black women that they kidnapped, which brings me to the story about Benelong and just relaying some of the things that um, I connected with that letter and just the way that these kind of things, just the way that people, that these things are about, find out about these policies and these new things that are happening. So you're speaking um, about the way in which Brad Hazard directed his yeah, cause letter Yeah, because it, sound, it, like, it sounded like a, a letter from a pen pal, like, you know what I mean? It didn't sound like a letter from a minister. It didn't sound like he was talking about people's houses. Mm. Um, you know, it was really... It's familiarity. It's like a colonial tactic to try it to- and... It totally is. And, um, you know, I was... I don't know, I might be on something, I might not be, but I was just kind of reminded about the earlier uh, proclamations with Governor Phillip and um, when they were claiming land and when they were stealing land and um, the proclamations that they that we have today, and uh, we can go back and look on. A lot of the proclamations that were written for Aboriginal people were kind of done in the style of... Um, it was done in the style like of art. It was done in the styles of visuals. It mm. didn't really have text. Um, you know, it was it was done in a tone that they knew that Aboriginal people could understand. Mm-hmm. Um, Even though they were false. What's that? Sorry. Even though these proclamations were in them in and of themselves robbing people of their land, it was well. They wasn't even talking about robbing people of the land. They were talking about if you spear this sheep. We're going to hang you, and mm. vice versa. Mm. You know those those famous um, images of um, yeah, a black man spearing a sheep, and then another one of a black man getting hanged, and then another picture of a white man shooting a black man, and then a white man getting hanged. So these are like storyboards almost, pretty much depicting. You know, it's like don't put your feet up on the train. I mean, it's much more intense than that, but it's it's the way in which um, it's a way of eliciting prior knowledge and then using it to push someone else's agenda Mm. um and you know i just have to bring it back to this was the reason why they went and kidnapped people like arabinu who escaped and then after he escaped went kidnapped benelong so that they could understand the language and then they started to understand that benelong only spoke his mob's language and probably his neighbor's language Mm. so you know they actually had to rethink Everything because all of their knowledge of colonizing space was based on the way that Gadical people had interacted with space and valued exactly. space and valued land and valued each other, um, and also subdivided 
areas as well. The indigenous body in and of itself is the mechanism to decode That's this right. landscape. That is, it is totally right. What we, what, it, is, it is born of this place, it is connected to it, mm. and it is in partnership with the land mm. that it has learnt. You know, the indigenous, mm. the, the, the ear, the eyes... The scent, the sound. I mean, the the nose, the the body of the Aboriginal Australian, depending on what country they are on, and if it is their country, is the mechanism to learn about that country, and yeah. and that is how colonizers have co-opted indigenous people and their narratives to take hold of this nation and take hold of this country. The only way that Mm -hmm. they got over the Blue Mountains is by kidnapping people. And this Mm -hmm. is going on over and over again. And what we're trying to do here on the Survival Guide is flip that. I think, you know, the thing with Arabino, there's a story about when Arabino was first taken into Government House and they they had put a a chain on him. They'd put like shackles on him. And they had told him that that was a bracelet. They had him believing it was a present and that he was lucky to be gifted this thing from mm. these ghosts. And it wasn't until that Arabino noticed that, that that thing was connected to a tree and he couldn't move, he started to become really distressed. Um, That's fucked up. Which I think, you know, and, and this is a long shot, but, you know, using coming across as being your friend... When you don't like, you don't know these people. That has kind of been used as a tool um, within colonization, within tactics. That has been used as a tool to plant people to get information, mm. be able to again elicit information yep. that they have no prior understanding of, mm. and to place back into that space, and to just really disrupt everything and make their voice the authority. Yep. You know, and I think there's a lot of parallels with that and I can't help but think that the way that these letters and the, the way that they're, the tones, everything, the language is used, if we had a bit more time to do a bit of a case study, it would be very interesting to see how those things have changed over the last 230 mm-hmm. years. Um, I, I, think it, I think it comes across in a lot of ways and I think this, I think this letter from Brad Hazard is kind of a, an example of that kind of... that paternalistic engagement the mm. way the way in which indigenous people and indigenous affairs but also not just indigenous people now also people in public housing are treated as almost the ward of the state in mm. a lot of ways um because the government believes that they have the rightful ownership of that land that public housing sits on, they are the ones who are in control, and it's a, it's an inherently unbalanced and paternalistic relationship mm. and I mean. This is not only a thing in Australia. I think it's really interesting the threads that you're pulling through because that's what we're trying to do here is try and talk about interesting different ways of unpacking this kind of relationship that has effectively been the same mm. in all of its I mean in all yeah. of its manifestations has inherently been unbalanced due to the the colonizers mm. and the settlers goals to mm. extract value from the land that they stole and I mean you know, this is the kind of the Red Fern Waterloo precinct is like a local example, but it is of the types of kind of redevelopment practices taking place globally. I mean, like specifically the politics of land ownership and the neoliberal colonization of public land being enacted through this precinct represents the common strategies and techniques that the private sector and governments use to take away people's ability to represent themselves and to organize themselves. 
it's it's really important for us to be able to like reinstate mm. our capacity to stand up against this. Um, That's it. I'm I'm just um listening to that. Um, I'm just thinking about you know the generational propaganda as well mm. um, that has been put out there by mainstream media and painting this whole community. Um, you know that we're all drug addicts, that we're violent people. Mm. Um, you know, there's all of these things that have happened. And growing up in the community, I quite used to get sick of people wanting to know my opinion about some messed up thing that happened, but never ever wanted to come and promote our performances and all the deadly little things that we yep. was always doing. Yep. You know, it used to really make me slack. Um, and I'm really sick of that that push, you know, for a lot of, like, white um, journalists to be coming into the community and not know anything about the community but ask really, really poorly framed questions that always make us look like we're the ones accountable for everything. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I think there's been a terrific smear campaign that's happened across the media as well and the government has definitely enabled that. You know, mass stigmatisation of public housing in general, I think, has happened actually globally due to certain... We've, we've, we've even had, like, daughters of governors be involved in murder cases in these flats, but, you know, they're being used, again, to move on the people from the flats, but no-one wants to talk about that rich little white girl. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, this, this is the type of stuff that has been happening right there on the footsteps of the whole city, mm. Um, mm. you know, on the doorstep, like... Definitely, um, definitely. And you I know, mean, there's just so many outrageous things that have been allowed to exist in that little pocket. And Waterloo and Redfern is such a small... You know, they're, they're probably the, the two smallest suburbs in the city. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not a big place. It's yeah. not a large place. Yeah, and it's further complicated by the ways in which the government now decides that they want to kind of proceed with their kind of redevelopment model and the way that they try to um, involve people and make people feel like they're being um, engaged in terms of consultation and other things. Mm. But really, I mean, a consultation, I mean, I have this, I, in my own mind, I, when, I, when I think about these sorts of things, we have the idea of consultation mm. as the way that the government frames it as something where you get to be a part of a discussion. Mm. But you know the word consultation i mean in a lot of ways like you go you go to a you go to a doctor or someone to be consulted on something really what they're trying to evoke is the idea of participation and negotiation but never using those words because that would seem too generous because yeah. they don't actually want your opinion we're going to talk a little bit about what some tenants were thinking at the time when the redevelopment was announced, mm. um, what it's like, the quality of life in the towers and, and what that's been like. Yeah, the and human cost has been full on and, you know, there's been generations living through this and yep. experiences. We also have all these other things that are disrupting um, our lives as well. You know, we've got 60-something thousand people literally going to be sharing a one of the smallest suburbs, one of the smallest spaces in Sydney. Mm. And uh, we have some recording that was Yeah, so we're kind of talking about the consultation process kind of that actually was the 
there's the beginning of our conversation in creating this show was how do we navigate um, this process that was going to um, be undertaken in Waterloo late last year around the consultation of the current tenants mm-hmm. and what they wanted out of the redevelopment mm-hmm. um, and really investigating the legitimacy of their aims in terms of consultation. What does consultation actually mean? Is it um, does it affect? Does it, is it actually effective? Is it performative? What, what is what is going on? Um, so we're going to start off the top here with a bit from a prior recording back in 2016 with a tenant, and also after that we'll follow up with a, the perspective from a um, private tenant living in the area. I've been living in Waterloo approximately 16, 17 years. Uh, basically what the government is planning on doing, as far as I know about it, all the houses from McAvoy Street, they're going to be torn down and they're going to move people in and then when they're finished they can move out to go somewhere else and I think we're going to be uh, the last to go. So, I mean, that's a resident recorded on, in 2016 talking about what they understood was going to happen um, on the ground at Waterloo. I mean, you can kind of hear it there. It's like the uncertainty of the process, and mm-hmm. this is what we talked about earlier. I think mm-hmm. that the, the kind of government and the way that these processes um, roll out is they, uh, they, they definitely enable a, um, a condition of precariousness and confusion and instability that then makes um, any mm-hmm. sort of... advancement or um, opportunity for relocation to minimise stress on yourself or anything else seem very appealing. Mm. Um, Thus uh, allowing the government or the kind of private interests in the equation to monopolise on that fear or on that uncertainty and get you out of there um, and do what they want to do. I just wanted to link... There's a link here. I've just woken up, sorry. <laughs> There's a link between dispossession and uh, gentrification and colonisation with dispossession. So with colonisation, it's Indigenous people that are being dispossessed. With gentrification, it's usually poor people yeah, marginalized being dispossessed, groups, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's the same thing. It's just a different group. But unfortunately, because of the way that this country has functioned in the last 230 years... It's Aboriginal people that are at the mm. bottom of those rungs. And every messed up thing that has ever been done to anybody, they've been testing it out on our people for definitely, 230 definitely. years. Um, so, you know, that's a direct link right mm. there. So instead of, you know, hearing specifically the Aboriginal response from this, like we would hear historically, we're hearing from poor people that are now going to be dispossessed the way that our people have been dispossessed exactly. and it's, dispossessed again. It's know? the threat. I mean, it's the, it's, it's the only thing mm. that colonisation and a colony can achieve mm-hmm. is the extraction of, you know, value from stolen land at the, at the cost of the um, lives of young Indigenous it? people or marginalised groups um, mm-hmm. and continues to do that. Um, now we're going to cut to a small bite with a person from the other side of the situation, a private, a private um, tenant living in Waterloo, Redfern, near the public housing estate and their um, engagement with the issue. Uh, we've been here for 10 years now, uh, just up on Wellington Street, so really, really close to the estate and um, with the Housing Commission neighbours on both sides. So, and when we arrived, found it really, really welcoming 
community. I moved over from Surrey Hills, or we all moved over from Surrey Hills. It was very welcoming. People bought us plants to say, welcome to the suburb and stuff like that. I didn't really get that in, in the previous houses I'd lived in. Um, and yeah, everyone kind of looks after each other and yeah, it's a great, great place to live generally. Um, trying to be as involved in the actual uh, process of master planning with the government as well, because I have a little bit of experience with, with that area. So I feel, I feel like if I can go down and help represent the community, both um, local private residents and also the community that lives within the estate, um, to ensure that you know it, it's things are done with their best interests in mind, and it's not just um, undertaken with you know a notion of how the government can profit as much as possible, and developers can also profit as much as possible. So he was speaking about something that we didn't kind of um, kind of get to yet, which was around this whole kind of issue within the consultation process of there being the master planning of the development and. Mm how tenants were going to be able to engage and um, be involved in that. Like we said before, a consultation kind of evokes the idea of a negotiation or a participation, but really is um, it comes pretty short from allowing those things. You know, we've seen our government be much more interested in um, the, the bottom line, you know, profits, than really and uh, what's actually happening to many people in these conditions. Then there is the kind of the more the more top-down approach that the government thinks is kind of um, suited for this sort of situation, where you know you've got the people who are um, probably best suited in a um, in a in a governmental or theoretical sense to deal with these things. You know your planners, your architects, blah blah blah, making the certain decisions for people. Um, or, or you know, or you have what I think what we're kind of getting, which is a hybrid of sort of that later idea of there being sort of the experts who can kind of make informed mm. decisions about your life, but at the lowest cost, mm. um, or with the highest profit yield for them. So mm -hmm. it's and, and so you kind of see this this rapid, uh, and like we spoke about last week, the, the the logic in which the kind of neoliberal model of deregulating these systems. We see this in the way that we kind of complete divestment from the public housing um, welfare state. There's now the privatisation of public housing and social housing to the Communities Plus model, which we're seeing rolled out um, across Sydney. And, you know, this is to take on all of the public housing, not just in Redfern, Waterloo, you know, Millers Point, all of those people who were displaced and dispossessed. Um, all the whole West Connects thing as well at the moment, you know, mm -hmm. all of it. Uh, a government body like the Land and Housing Corporation or Urban Growth, which is the private development wing of the New South Wales government, um, which has now taken control of the two developments, one being the new um, expanded development of the Waterloo Metro Quarter, which will be the, the site on Botany Road, where, mm -hmm. um, where um, they've just de demolished a city block to build the metro station, which then would necessitate the redevelopment of the Waterloo Public Housing Estate, which is the second state-significant precinct. What I don't understand is how all of that on Botany Road is affecting the whole of a suburb as well, you know. Um, if you want to build a station, like just build a station, why do you have to displace all of these people to do it and then move 60-something thousand new faces in there um, to live there? 
a lot of the people that have been given the job to do these consultations as well have no prior understanding or knowledge of the community. So it's been the job of people like me to actually educate these people on how to do their jobs. When you have such a like a heavily a heavily bureaucratic system in which people have to get um, cons- like cons- people have to go to meetings about considering who are the best people to then engage to then be paid for the contract of the first consultation bracket and so they look for indigenous organizations to do it but they can't find them in Redfern because the ones in Redfern either don't want to do it because they don't have um, a good relationship with the government and don't see that that is getting any better. So they go and... Well, they've been held under duress for the last 30 years as well. You know, places like Redfern where we've had um, all these Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, all of these great things happen, they've been eroded. Like what we've talked about in our Mm. past two episodes, like what you've recapped. And Um, then... But I just wanted to bring it to the the statement again in this letter. It was about experienced fact staff. And I guess... I can testify that the people that are being employed for this job are not experienced. They don't know what they're doing. They don't even know how to engage with people. I've actually like felt like I've been speaking to police half the time um, because people, you know, from facts would literally intimidate um, to get into your house. And for what? You know what I mean? Like. They're never ever doing the things that they say that they're doing on paper. And again, this is this is where me as um, you know, someone that has grown up in the community that knows all of these things, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because I'm like, this is what your people did a long time ago. Yeah, and it just it just blows my mind. They just um, can't help it. No, they can't. And I guess that that's that's what happens when thieves become thieves and they keep thieving and they feed from each other. Um, So I think what's important to consider when we talk about all this very complex and convoluted system is the effects that it has on the tenants, the effects that it has on everyone living in Waterloo right now and what this kind of, these these things um, do to a community when you put people in such a stressful situation. And I mean, directly, the two towers in, in Waterloo are predominantly made up of elderly people, mm-hmm. um, the tenants who live there. And to put, you know, someone's grandparent, someone's great-grandparent in this sort of stressful position of no real certain idea of what's mm. going to happen to them mm. um, is, is really, I mean, this is the whole thing when it's, when it's, when it's all kind of veiled in a, in, a, in a complicated, convoluted democracy that, I mean, bureaucracy <laughs> we're not living in a it's democracy the same, guys no. um, <laughs> that w- you people can shed themselves of responsibility towards what is actually abhorrently negligent which is treating old people like mm. tra- like like well they 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 these fellas know that these old people are going to die in 20 years oof. you know what i mean and probably the stress of all of this stuff will probably make them want to die a little bit sooner. Yeah, I'm sorry um, about that. That's you know, it. like it's, it's full on, but, you know, I've got to be straight up uh, about this because this is, we're talking about people's lives here. <clears throat> and in talking about Waterloo, I think it's important that we have kind of the perspective of someone from Waterloo um, included, someone who lives in the towers uh, on... I lived in the towers for like 11 years. Sorry, I was just like, ha- I was like rolling my eyes like... 
terribly than just thinking about it. But um, I just wanted to say, like, you know, I've grown up in the community. I do not remember being a kid and seeing private residents. I do not remember seeing rich white people with um, accents, um, English foreign accents, whatever, uh, pushing their kids' prams through the parks that we played in, you know. When I was growing up, unfortunately, my community was pretty famously known as a place where people go to suicide because there was no security in those towers, you know. So they're the kind of things that we grew up seeing. So now when I see little white kids singing really racist songs in the playground while my son's there playing and other black kids are there playing, it really kind of slaps me around because I've never, ever experienced that. And that is kind of the human cost of even having private private residents living right there in a social housing project. Mm. Well, it's a spec- and it's also property speculation that creates a sort of um, disproportionate um, kind of unbalanced differential between the, what is the kind of you know the market cost of now living in Redfern and that's what we that's how we see this sort of huge uplift and crazy gentrification that we've all been experiencing and that we're all complicit in um so we all grew up watching houses mm. uh watching families black families and other poor families go through houses and then having that you know or my friend lives in such and such house. Oh, yeah, that's them people used to live there. And it's like a huge narrative about who used to be there and where they used to, where they was before, mm. you know. And then watching sold signs go up on these properties, you know, these are the houses that us as kids hope to one day live in, mm. you know, because it goes back to that whole dream in this country of having a house. And unfortunately, in Waterloo, the reason why Waterloo looks the way it does is because they recognize that not everybody is going to be able to have that. So let's do this. Let's give them flats. Let's create a really vibrant community here. Um, and that's what it's been for it has. a very long time. It has. Um, you know, there's... And the only problems, I have to say, the, the problems that are existing in the community come from neglect, come from maintenance issues, come from bigger social issues and colonial PTSD that nobody wants to do any counselling over or nobody even has any counselling courses you know, there's there's a there's a huge ripple effect and intergenerational trauma. Again, you know, the poor people, the poor and black people, are being blamed and mm. moved on. Yeah, you know, and um, you wonder why I get triggered. Mm. We had a we had a really great discussion uh, two weeks ago at an event that um, we held at on Cockatoo Island, um, talking around the ideas of gentrification and displacement in communities like Redfern and Waterloo um, where we got a really great opportunity to speak to another tenant of the towers who's been living there for some time covert um, kind of rebel grandmother that is Catherine Skipper um, shared with us her own experiences of living in in that space and I think we're going to play a little bit for you now just to kind of paint the picture around what you know like what what the cost is like what's what's um, what's the kind of lived experience of people who are in this in these in these places now um mm. and a different perspective definitely mm. an older perspective an older white perspective but i mean that's the kind of you know that's the sort of aspirational ideas of public housing was that it was for everybody um whoever needed it and yeah, it was for families it was for single people it was for mm. elderly people to have their independence mm. it was all these great things so we're going to cut to a little bit of a conversation with Catherine. There are two towers. High rises, low rises, 
So I'm lucky enough to live in Wanted, which is a completely beautiful building. Um, architecturally, it's extremely interesting. If you take the time to look at it, look at it and don't think of it as public housing. It's a beautiful building. Inside, it's beautifully designed to promote social relationships between the people who are in their units. It has a garden. It has a, a sort of glass house at the top that you're not allowed in. <laughs> That's a bit of an urban myth in my community. I remember when that place used to be lit up and I've asked people my age if they, re they remember it because being city kids, you know, those were the things that my brothers and sisters told me to look out for if I was lost in the city. You look for them towers, you look for that light, and it, well, it, did, it looked like giant lighthouses um, back when I was younger. And I've asked people my age if they remember that, and they're like, nah. How long have you been there? Sorry, I've just turned this into an interview, an extension of our show. Seven years. Seven years. And I'm one of the walking wounded. <laughs> I can still move around. Um, and it's a very wonderful building. In fact, I invite you to go there mm. and have a tour through Matterfine. It's got the most beautiful view of the Sydney that is slowly and surely being eclipsed by all this development. Um, so I, I do feel, my own feeling is that um, the government's way of dealing with Waterloo Estate, which I, I think is a unique place, and also with Waterloo Library, which has been closed, it's as if they want to completely eradicate the existence of Waterloo altogether, um, call it some other name. I believe that Raglan Street was a name proposed for the new station, so it's as if they want to entirely rid themselves of this area which is, has such a long Aboriginal heritage and also working class Australia, which is not fashionable at the moment. So, yes, but I don't think we can win the fight for keeping the towers, but I wish we could. Well, they're still there. They're still standing. <laughs> no one said anything or done anything yet. Not yet. Um, but it moves closer, I think. But we keep, it's not that we've given up, we do keep trying. But in one sense, in some senses, I don't think we get very much support from the people who actually live within the state themselves. And there's a bit of a, a, bit of a thing, they really use confusion as a tool um, with the residents. I think one, one year they'll say one thing and then you won't hear no feedback from it and then next minute they're like rushing along with their plans and they've got to give every, get everybody out of those buildings. So I lived in Daniel Salander buildings for 11 years. I've only just moved out and um, those buildings had been named after colonialists and um, you know, in such a, such a space. I think what you've said is very interesting as well about getting rid of the name Waterloo because you know, again, that was celebrating colonialism by naming this place Waterloo, which was celebrating, you know, um, English um, versus France. Um. All the streets in Waterloo are named after the Battle of Waterloo. Yeah, well, you've got the Duke of Wellington, you've got yeah. the George, you've got the all Iron these pubs there, yeah, the Iron Duke, you know, they're, they're, they're all colonial. Um, and every, all the street names too. And they were named in the 1860s, which is really, really completely ridiculous because the Dan Battle was in 1815. So they were still importing their heroes from 
mm. from from a, a time long past. Mm. But since it's been associated with Aboriginal community, they've got to get rid of the name now. Oh, well. <laughs> who knows what they think? Exactly, that's the point, right? At the right? late last meeting of the Water Urban Development Group, which is interminable, a woman from the Metro came to speak to us and um, I asked, I suggested to them that they called the news station Gadigal. Um, there was a horrible silence in the room. So... I've got a talk on that. And that, another name that they're proposing, they actually don't know what it means and they actually don't know whose language it is and the way it's spelt isn't actually using any letters that any of our mobs speak on the East Coast, let alone in the in inland. Um, so, you know, there's these big questions. What but uh, I'll probably remember it, but it meant um, native raspberries. Oh, beautiful. It meant native raspberries. But the thing is, is that nobody can actually place this word. And it goes back to the first landowner in, in, uh, that owned the area, who um, pretty much, he was the one that managed the con convict constructions. So he was the convict that was given the job to manage other convicts and, and whip their backs. Um, and he was given that plot of land right next to Dr. Redfern, which Rachel, Rachel Foster Hospital was built on the top of his hut, um, you know, so those bricks and that sort of stuff, you know, if they would have been used from the clay from St. Peter's, from the kilns there and stuff like that. Um, um, would have been taken from, the, like, the big lime that was used in the border, it was taken from middens, like, that's where they dug it out of the ground to create those things, and they, I mean, there's this continual layering over, and, I mean, of course, we're, like, lamenting these ideas and these conversations around these streets and buildings, these buildings, um, having these deeply offensive colonial histories and colonial names. But then, uh, on top of that, given its in Indigenous history of the last 50 years, there is embedded temporal narratives of an entire community connected to that space and the harm that you do to people when you erase that again. We've been listening to Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna. Um, and we're kind of going into the last leg of the show. We're getting there, we're getting there. Um, so it's just a bit of a recap, I guess. Just talking about where we're going and where we, where we want to go with it as well. Mm. And some of the people that are out there, the voices that are out there um, counteracting a lot of these things, the voices that are out there trying to educate everybody about what's happening. Um, uh, Women of Waterloo were one group um, that have been very vocal in trying to stop Waterloo library from being mm. um a part of this construction a part of these plans they've been holding um kind of sit-ins and read-ins at the library and at mm -hmm. a protest where they mm -hmm. will um come to the library and stay past closing hours and mm -hmm. refuse to leave as an occupational method to try and cause awareness um around the issues around how important the waterloo library is and the fact that it sits outside of the development but is now being redeveloped mm. in and of itself is quite interesting. Um, they also have a petition that you can sign, which we will put up on the Radio Skid Row Facebook page, that we would all love for you to get involved. I think they'll be holding some more protests over the next com coming weekends. Catherine Skipper, who we just heard before the break, um, is an active member of the Women of Waterloo, um, alongside uh, Pratichi and Jenna 
and a lot of other people that have been working down in Waterloo doing some good stuff for a while now. Yeah, been active for a while um, and just talking about a lot of the erosion that's been happening, you know, a lot of the voices that have come out in uh, resistance to this, in opposition to these plans, a lot of them have kind of been hijacked as well, you know. A lot of them are not in existence, which is why we have, um, you know, the smaller kind of um, sort of breakaway sort of groups, but they're there, mm. you know. And a lot of people in that community are not aware specifically about Waterloo Library at the moment. And it's not like we have a lot of public space that we can go to and, you know, just like have a conversation or pick up a book or even look at images. Mm. Look at images of what was there before. Yeah, that's really important. It really is. Um, And especially a lot of the mapping stuff that we worked on when we first met and those conversations were all about, you know, what was there, the layering, the built Mm. up of land. And um, what stands to be lost. And the narratives as well. What narratives do we want to hold on to? Which brings me kind of to a little closing kind of conversation or really um a, i don't know it's just my 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 feels my vibes but you know we've been really it. talking about the roles of residents uh private and public the roles of people who are for gentrification and who are against it and um you know i think that these roles are starting to become as loaded as being dispossessed or being a coloniser. You know, there's a lot of people, um, there's a huge black transient population that's always come through Sydney. But at the moment, you know, there's a lot of people that live in Waterloo, Redfern, that have no connection to that community, but they're right there and they're working there. But nobody actually knows who they are and they don't actually know other people around them. For me, as someone living in this community, that has never, ever happened before. Mm. You know, so it's kind of created all these really interesting kind of conversations. It's also created a, a lot of a lot of energy, uh, um, a lot of... It's created a lot of disagreements. It's created a lot of, um, you know, arguments because people are responding because they actually can't look at how they're complicit in all of this. Mm. So regardless if you're black or white, you can possibly be a gentrifier and it's about mm. where you sit in all these and, and how you look at at these things and, and are failing to have empathy or failing to be able to put yourself in these people's shoes and actually know what it's like to be dispossessed and moved on and actually live in a, 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 a space that's been neglected mm-hmm. and and everyone's just put in one place and then we all get blamed for all the things that happen there again you know um without any of any of these services you know so there's there's a really interesting conversation at the moment and i just want to remind people that everybody has a part to play everybody has something that they can do that nobody else can um and that is even these gentrifiers um you know and people that are not necessarily seeing the dots and connecting them. If you're feeling involved or if you're feeling complicit in this in this relationship, you know, you, you enjoy a nice drink at one of the brand new flash bars that are open, opening up on Redfern Street um, and you are reaping the benefits, I guess, of... Yeah, you of bring your kids the, to a playground. With the kind of longer narrative of this kind of dispossessive um, quality of gentrification. 
And it's not to say to feel guilty because don't feel guilty because that'll just paralyze you. I think what you need to do is understand that you're involved in this cycle. Um, and really, that's actually a great opportunity for mm. you to understand and to then treat that intersection of your own privilege and someone mm. else's oppression, someone else's marginalization as the leverage mm. point for you to do something. Mm. Don't treat it like this is. Um, something that you have no control over and something that you can't do, these things can happen in good ways. Mm. I think everyone has a role to play in this situation and I th we're trying to supply you guys with great great tools and techniques and, and, and tactics. You know, we're always going to be the ones who know about this shit. I mean, we're, people on the front line are the ones who can, can you know, s spread the word. And I just want to, you know, for the people that want to get involved as well, if you're not firsthand experiencing this, why don't you support our testimonials? Why don't you support us in any way that you can? But a lot of people, you know, unfortunately, if it's not their voice at the centre, then they don't want to hear it. And that's kind of the problem that I see going on here is that a lot of these things that are happening are getting hijacked. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, the proper narratives of the place are being silenced again. Erased. Again yeah. and again and again and again and again. There's you a new know? community coming in and they're all surveillance. Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> um. No, it's just, you know, you, it's uh, uh, it's such a full-on thing. But, you know, having, having my baby, um, I love that he's, you know, mixing with all different types of people and learning. Mm. But if those people are going to treat him less than and dehumanise him, and trigger me as a black mother and not educate their white children about the land they stand on, then, you know, there's a lot more there's a lot more work to be done. And I guess that's what I'm I'm getting at. We're looking at social cohesion. How do we move forward? How do we keep what community life we do still have and I think that's really important to kind of come back to the idea and what we were talking about earlier about what's been going on in Redfern Waterloo and, and, and discussing the kind of timeline since 2015, what has kind of happened and what is what has continued to be uncertain and precarious for this community. With all this redevelopment timeline that's been given to people by land and housing and urban growth, um, these are tenants, but also, you know, private tenants living around the area to keep up to date with what's going on. Consultations are usually scheduled for small groups. They divide groups of communities. They'll have a consultation for people who are of a certain age. They'll have a consultation for people of a certain ethnicity. They'll have a, con and that's important. But in a, but what we've kind of learnt as we've kind of been kind of going to these consultations, or at least hearing, you know, firsthand from people who have been to these consultations, that the stories that they're being told are different each time. And I think it's giving kind of a dramatic insight into the idea that the government doesn't really know what they're doing right now. Mm. And then you can kind of see with what's being what's been what's been shown now recently in the past month they um, unveiled that they are actually putting in it kind of in it, they're kind of fast tracking the um, the redevelopment of the metro station um, or what they're now calling the metro um, the Waterloo Metro quarter which is entirely private with the train station below. Um, the metro station will be finished two years before the track works down. Two years before the trains arrive, there will be a new um, business hub with private, uh, with um, with commercial, with commercial um, 
office space as well as uh, probably a shopping center and some other things. But the way that this kind of enables a um, a kind of differential and unbalanced speculative market is, you know, you always build, you build that amenity first because what the amenity does is it increases the value of the property around it. Mm. And what that will do is that has a huge uplift effect in rent and it will, and it will um, trickle through to all of the businesses in the surrounding area. These are businesses that are, you know, the pubs that can sell, that, that can, are able to sell cheap food to people who live in the public housing estate because they might not have enough money. You know, these are the cheap, the, the cheap grocers, the bakeries, the places that have supplied this community for mm-hmm. the last 30 years with um, services and um, something that makes, you know, living there possible. When you increase the rent, those those places can no longer exist, and all that's left are your kind of standardized, franchised, and kind of mm. nationwide places because they're the only ones that have capital enough to um, mm. pay the rent in the area. And so it's mm. also it's a it's a sweeping of homogeneity across the community. It's a sweeping of homogeneity through the city of Sydney. You know, this is like we've said before with the redevelopment of Redfern Waterloo, and then also the redevelopment down at Green Square. In the next twenty years, we're going to see an influx of seventy thousand people in this small bracket. It's one of the smallest suburbs exactly. in the city. Um, and who are these seventy thousand people? You know, they tell us that, of course, there's going to be, you know, within the process of the 15 years that the 3,000 public housing tenants that exist currently will be able to stay. But, you know, that my math comes out that that's, there's another 67,000 people that are going to rock up. And who are they going to be? And, 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 and what's the city going to be like? And who, who, who gets the right to be in the city? Mm. Well, like I said, you know, those what you're talking about, what that looks like is those stories that I talk about with my son, you know, the fact that Waterloo is going to be a different Waterloo than the one that I grew up in for Mm. him. Mm. You know, I never experienced racism until I was 12, until I was 13, leaving my community and going to school outside of my community. Unfortunately, my son has experienced racism at the age of two. Yeah. Um, So, you know, when when we get down to it, that's what these things look like that's what they feel like and it's very triggering yeah and again that's why we're coming back and it's like yeah i've been triggered but actually our people have been we've been working through this for a very long time so it's worth taking a look it's worth connecting these dots it's worth dis- dissecting language mm, exactly. foreigners language again you know exactly, exactly. that's a, that's a, that's another tool well I mean, that's about it for us today. Um, we hope you've enjoyed what you've heard thus far, kind of just recapping on what's been going on in Waterloo, kind of off of the timeline of what we've been given, but also kind of wildly around what we feel as people on the ground are experiencing. I mean, we if there's anyone working in land and housing or at Urban Growth that wants to... Um, Contra, you know, counter our claims. Please call us up. We'll be here not next week, but the week after. Yeah, we'd or you love can to have contact a us up on Facebook. We would love to have a conversation. We'd actually would really love to learn more because really what we found is we don't find out enough in these consultation yeah. meetings, or they're just at a time where it's quite difficult for us to get to. Um, and I mean that's us, but um, information is very limited as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and I think that's the tactic, and I think that's what we're trying to say is that this kind of the whole situation is something that needs to be navigated, and we're trying to supply you with some tools and some ideas around how to 
better deal with this stuff as mm -hmm. it kind of unfolds. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to check out any extra content, we might put up some of the stuff we were talking about today. We'll put a link to the letter that was sent out by um, Brad Hazard um, in, on 2015, um, so you could kind of dissect the language yourself as well as maybe some evidence of the proclamation that we were talking about earlier. Um, maybe our residents out there can start digging um, with their own personal records and start to look at these letters um, I myself have discarded because I just didn't have the tools to be able to cope with that back then. But, you know, again, it's worth, it's, it's worth having a look. Don't forget, you play a part in this. And um, if you don't want to see Redfern Waterloo change forever in, in a way that you don't want to see it change, then you can, you, can, you, can, you can be a part of this. You can be a part of the opposition of the kind of... Well, it's the alternative. The it's the alternative plans, right? Mm. And that's the alternative plans is to invest in what we already have. You know, let us fix it. Let us do it. Like we've actually been doing all right with the little that we've been given for so long. Give so us the keys. That's um, right. And our land back. Yes, please. Um, no. <laughs> no. Fuck you. You take it. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, you've been listening to The Survival Garden Radio Skid Row on 88.9 FM with Joel. And Lorna and, um, yeah. We'd like to give a shout out to the um, Community Broadcasting Foundation and University of Sydney for letting this happen. A shout out to Radio Skid Row and our lovely producer, Hannah, um, who's kind of helped us form a lot of this and has put up with us on a pretty shitty week. Um, mm. Hope you guys all have a good Friday and a good weekend. All of you hitting Solange over the next four days. I'm very jealous. I have to be at uni for the next four days, finishing off all of my work. But oh my I God, heard I it's going to be mad. I just remembered I got a ticket. Ooh. Ooh, lucky you. Oh, my God. Yes, no, Solange. All, all the mob coming in from all over the place. Big shout-outs. Let's play some music. Let's take it out and um, sign out. Hope you have a better week than we did. Thanks for listening.